Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. And then uh, you should be kind of right around uh, John's gospel. Um, If you start getting into books like Acts or Romans, um, you've gone too far. So turn back to the left and uh, and you'll find us right there in John's gospel. Um, So uh, if you need a Bible, let me say this too, um, that we've got those available on our uh, our kind of information connection table. Um, If you want to get up, grab one of those or throw a hand up, we can have somebody bring one to you. Um, But again, we've made kind of a habit of of reinforcing this fact over the course of the past few weeks. We are a Bible-loving church. We love the Bible. And so we want to to, to be there, right, as we're gathered together. And so if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Um, We want to be Bibles open, reading along as we kind of, uh, as we kind of go. That's the rhythm that we're trying to establish as a, church. In addition, let me say a few things about this new series that we're starting, okay? Um, As a church, our desire is to give equal attention um, as best as we can to both the Old and New Testaments, understanding that they are both perfect and they are both profitable, okay? Uh, So this, as I've already stated, informs the rhythms of our time together on Sunday morning. What we typically do um, is rotate between Testaments, right? As we practice what is referred to as sequential exposition. Okay, so what does that mean? It means this. It means that 98% of the time we are opening up to chapter 1, verse 1 of a book, and we are working our way through the entirety of that book um, in an effort to best understand God's Word in its context um, in order to to cover uh, a lot of times some difficult topics that may not otherwise be chosen or selected for the Sunday morning gathering. Uh, we're We're able to lean in to this and embrace this. And so we love the way that God works through this as we do. We are taking a little bit of a, of a diversion away from that in that we are not opening up to the gospel of John chapter one, verse one, and working our way through its entirety, but we're going to be working through um, some select passages, which again, I'll talk more about in just a minute. But we just spent 13 months in Genesis Wow. (laughs) Right? Insane. I can't believe it's over. Like, to be honest, like, I never imagined us being here in this moment six months ago. I just couldn't see it ever happening. But here we are. The Lord is so faithful. Um, And so we've spent 13 months in the book of Genesis. Now we're moving on to a shorter New Testament series. Uh, If you're here this morning or if you listen to the podcast later, you get a little bit of insight as to what is next. Um, Not only will we be going through the seven miracles, talk about that in just a moment, recorded in John's gospel by Jesus. Uh, But after we finish this, we're going to go to a shorter Old Testament book before we begin a long New Testament study. So spoiler alert, that's kind of like what's ahead. You guys have a little bit of insight if you are here uh, this morning. Um, But this morning, right, we are starting what is a seven-week series as I've mentioned, exploring the seven miracles of Jesus recorded here in this gospel. Miracles or signs recorded for a specific purpose, with a specific intent. And here's the beautiful thing about the way John writes. Okay, we don't have to guess what that intent is. We don't have to guess why John has, um, has compiled under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this gospel the way that he has. Why he includes the miracles that he does. Because 
If we look to the end of John's gospel, he tells us exactly why. And so if you're, if you're sitting here and you go, okay, we're about to start a seven-week series in which we kind of like look at these miracles and signs from Jesus. Why does John write these? Again, let's look to the end of John's gospel and allow John to tell us why he writes these. John chapter 20, verse 31. John writes this. He says, I I write these so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So why is John writing? Why does he include here the signs that he does that we will be exploring over the course of the next seven weeks? Well, he does so, so that we might believe in Jesus. And that by believing in Jesus, we might what? Well, we might be made alive, right? And so there, there's this kind of this confrontation that we lean into here in the very beginning. And that is this, that apart from a belief, a, a right understanding and belief of the, of the person of Jesus, we are dead. Now, of course, we're talking in a, in a spiritual sense here, right? Like later on affirmed by a physical experience, right? We, we experience death in this life bodily as a result of our sin and rebellion, okay? We are spiritually now existing in what is a future state apart from the beautiful and gracious work of Jesus, Right? We are spiritually dead in our sin in need of being made alive. And so John says this based on what we read in John chapter 20, verse 31. Hey, I'm writing all this stuff so that you people can be alive. <laughs> okay? I'm writing this. I've compiled this so that you might see Jesus, that you might believe in Jesus, and that by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. It is in the name of Jesus and Jesus alone in whom we might believe, whom we might express faith and in turn be made alive. Did you catch that? That's a super exclusive statement, isn't it? Right? It's, it's not belief in ourselves or our own ability, or our own righteousness. It's not belief in any other deity, right? Or, or, or God of this world or, or God embraced by other religious systems or organizations. It is belief in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the rescuer. Genesis chapter three. It's belief in this Jesus that provides for us life, faith. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, man, welcome, welcome. This is a great time to come in and to begin your, uh, your journey with us as a church because we're gonna be spending a lot of time over the next seven weeks talking about Jesus. Through the miracles of Jesus recorded here, John desires that his readers would see and submit themselves to the deity of Jesus. That he is God the Son, and as God the Son, he he exegetes God the Father. Well, what does that mean? It means this. It means that Jesus explains the Father for us. And so if you're here and you're going, I wonder what God the Father is like. We get a great picture, the best picture, the most accurate picture through Jesus because Jesus is God. Through these miracles, Jesus recorded in John, we see the power of God and we see his activity in the world beginning in 
John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Jesus, while attending a wedding in Cana, transformed six large jars of water into wine before, here's a little bit of a glimpse at where we're going over the course of the next few weeks, healing the sick in John chapter 4 and 5. Feeding the 5,000 in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Walking on water again in John chapter 6, verses 16 through 25. Restoring sight to the blind in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. Before finally this culminating work in which Jesus brings his dead friend Lazarus back to life. Miracles that contain within them common elements. That is to say that they are not random, right? They're not, they're not disconnected. Instead, we see multiple instances of Jesus establishing his identity, expressing his deity by way of his power in some really beautiful and interesting ways. We observe Jesus exercising his deity, displaying his power over elements in this world, such as sickness and sin, and even finally over death. And in each, we are provided a glimpse into kingdom existence. Now, this is really important. Now, hang with me here in the beginning, because as you guys know, uh, if you've been here before, we love context, (laughs) okay? And so it's not uncommon to spend like the first like 15 minutes just talking about what we're reading and why it's important. We see through each one of these miracles, a glimpse into kingdom existence. That is a world absent from the effects of the fall. Or what is the world absent of the effects of sin and rebellion from God look like? What does new creation look like? In each one of these, we are provided insight. We're provided a glimpse into what the world minus sin is to look like. A call into faith. Faith in Jesus to satisfy and sustain ultimately through his own resurrection in which we see hope by way of this glimpse into a, a, a full encompassing work of not only what Jesus does through these individual miracles to provide a glimpse into what kingdom existence looks like, but to bring about the existence of this kingdom. We read all of these individually and we understand their connection, but we also understand their coexistence in the recreation. We understand their coexistence in a world absent from sin. Now, in order to get the structure and the ultimate direction of what Jesus is doing through these miracles, we have to first get Jesus. Okay, we have, to, we have to grasp the true identity of Jesus, his place in history as the king who has been promised, who would rescue and restore humanity, who would rescue and restore our world through his blood, the new covenant that possesses this 
power to accomplish what the law that is the old covenant weakened by sinful flesh could not. So understanding that, here's what I want us to do. Understanding that we need to get Jesus and we need to understand how how Jesus, how all of this is about Jesus and how God is ultimately accomplishing and fulfilling his purposes for the world in and through Jesus. So let's take a minute and let's watch a short video. Hear from from our friends at the Bible Project as they illustrate and discuss the Messiah's, that is Jesus's place in human history. Let's take a few minutes and let's watch this. Restoration, right? Restoration, what a gift uh, the content created by the boys at the Bible Project is for our church. Uh, I want to give us a main idea that we're going to kind of work through as we weave our way through John chapter 2 this morning. Um, I think we are going to have this on the screen. Um, I would encourage you to write this down. This is going to uh, kind of serve to to guide our time. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Here it is. Jesus fulfills the old covenant. Jesus fulfills the old covenant, establishing a new covenant bringing transformation, purification, and joyful celebration. Jesus fulfills the old covenant, establishing a new, bringing transformation, purification, and joyful celebration. We'll leave that up for just a moment for those of you that are uh, that are taking notes. So our goal from John chapter 2 um, is to trace flow that I believe is going to help us get to this idea. So let's begin with um, this, this concept of recreation and transformation by the King, Jesus, beginning in verse one. So look with me there, John chapter two, verse one. Here we go. We're starting a new journey and it is beginning right now. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. There are two important points that Jesus makes or that we are to understand as we read uh, the statements of Jesus here in these first two verses. The first is this, because there is somewhat of a temptation given our own cultural experience and the way language works to read the words of Jesus there in verse two and go, wow, bit snippy, Jesus, right? Like a bit, a bit rude. Right, maybe a bit out of order. Seems to not be like the most solid way to talk to mom. This is not the way that we should understand or or read Jesus's words. In fact, this is the very same. Uh, this is the very same same context in which this term "woman" is used to address his mom from the cross, as we see it in John chapter nineteen, verse twenty six. When he looks down and he sees he sees Mary and he sees John and he says to her, "Woman, behold your son." And so the first thing that we need to do is we need to understand that we can read these first two verses of Jesus and he remains perfectly sinless, right? That this is not out of line, that this is not out of order, that tone means a lot when we read the Bible. And I think that we sometimes read that statement a little bit differently. Is that a main point? No, but I do want us to understand it as we kind of work our way through. Second, There is a narrowing that's taking place even now through the words of Jesus. 
Jesus is, is talking about, as we uh, conclude verse 2, this hour. He speaks here in verse 2 of this hour. And we find Jesus, as he prepares to perform his first miracle, recorded here in John's gospel, focusing on the cross. Focusing on the, on the cross, which would make possible the kind of, of recreation, the kind of restoration, the kind of transformation that we're going to be talking about through these 11 verses. He talks of this, this hour, an hour in which we will observe, as our brothers at the Bible Project have helped us to understand this morning, this great act of recreation in which there is this going back to the essence of the garden, which is a world that is, that is pure, a world that is abundant, a world that is absent of sin, a world that is absent of shame, a world that is absent of separation. There is this hour that Jesus is working towards, and that hour is in mind even as we begin now. Everything that we're going to be reading over the course of the next seven weeks, we must maintain this connection with the cross of Christ. We, we must understand that this is even now what Jesus is, is working towards. This is what he is, he is moving us towards. This is what his, his life is, is about as he beautifully and perfectly fulfills the law of the Lord in all the ways that we cannot before substituting himself in our place, thus satisfying the wrath of God, do sin, and making possible for you and I this, this reconnection, this friendship by way of new hearts, no longer hearts of stone, but now hearts of flesh that love the Lord and desire right, his will and, 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 uh, and, and desires for the world to be, to be understood and, and realized. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Narrowing in on the cross. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, this is beautiful. Do whatever he tells you to, right? There is a, a confidence observable from Mary here, even now that Jesus is, is fully capable of doing these, these incredible things, the incredible works, and that he can guide himself. Now, I'm going to read verses 6 through 9, and then we're going to revisit those. So I'm going to read them, and then we're going to say some things about some things we have just said, and then we're going to go back to verses 6 through 9. So hang with me, okay? Here we go. Verse 6. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, verse 8. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Okay, this master would have been like a, like a head waiter. Take it to the head waiter. Take it to the guy who is in charge. When you have a, a party like this, like a, like a wedding, we're familiar with this. You oftentimes would have, even now, hired someone to come in and to handle feeding these people. Right? And like... And like refreshing drinks and doing all of these things. You bring someone in to, to be about this work so that the family might enjoy the celebration, right? So that certainly the, the, the bride and groom don't have to worry about it so that they can just, so that they can just celebrate. This is who this guy is. The master of the feast. Take it to him. So they took it to him. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine. 
We're, we're talking about recreation. We're talking about restoration. We're talking about transformation. And ultimately, we're going to be pointing towards this act of God to restore and to transform the human heart and ultimately the world as we know and understand it. But it begins with this really beautiful miracle that takes place at a wedding that establishes for us confidence in Christ's ability to go about the work of recreation in the now. Here's what we're saying. Okay, here's what we're saying. That there is both a a temporal and an eternal transformation. Right, that we we in the temporal feel the benefits in the eternal, but what we're saying here is then what we're seeing here is this is that Jesus isn't waiting until everything's over to begin restoring, that Jesus isn't waiting until everything is over to begin transforming, which is good news for you and I. It means this that we don't have to wait until our king comes back to begin participating and experiencing the benefits of transformation and recreation. Or did you catch that? Like we don't have to wait until it's all over for that to be understood, for that to be realized. In fact, if we do, there's going to be major issues. There's an encouragement to lean into God's work to recreate and transform in the now. Now, this is totally different than the way that many in our culture maybe even understand the way in which Christianity works or understand like, like the, the interaction between higher power and the world in the now. This is different. Okay, let's come at it from a perspective of of deism. One commentator says this, that deism pictures God as a God who created everything, but afterwards he is not involved in the day-to-day operations of the world. In fact, he is distant. Man, what a miserable concept. (laughs) Like what an awful concept. And one that is, if we consider what we have just read, thoroughly obliterated in John chapter 2. This idea of a, of a disconnected or, or disinterested God with his creation. What we find as we lean into these first few verses of John chapter 2 and the, the miracle of Jesus that we observe is quite the opposite. We observe God's entrance into the world by way of the Son. We see this act of creation here that calls us back to, we just watched this video, creation in the beginning. Jesus has come for this very purpose. To what? Well, to to transform, to bring about conversion, water into wine, and ultimately sinners into saints. God does this incredible work of recreation and restoration and transformation within the human heart here and now. John chapter 2 helps us to understand the way that this works. That God is not distant. That God is not disinterested. That God is not disconnected. That he doesn't gaze down upon his creation and go, well, good luck everyone. (laughs) Right? I'm sort of hands off at this point. That's not what we observe here. We observe his interaction in and with creation as he goes about this beautiful and like somewhat simple as we consider what it points to ultimately act of turning water into wine. That's the the action, right, of God interacting 
with creation, bringing about transformation, bringing about this conversion of elements. That which was one thing is now being made into something that is altogether different. Here's the good news. This is what the gospel says, right? Is that, is that God, right, through the, the person and work of Jesus, his obedience and his substitutionary atoning work. Now, that's a big word, but it's an important word. So let me, let me tell you a little bit about what that means. Christ in our place, taking our punishment, right? He steps onto the cross, right? So that you and I might experience the, the temporal and eternal benefits of right relationship with God, that which we cannot accomplish on our own so that hard hearts of stone might be transformed into soft hearts of flesh. Our hearts are naturally hard. Hardened to the Lord, hardened to his desire, hardened to his mission. What we see here through John chapter 2 is God's willingness to enter in and engage with creation in the now that brings about and produces this beautiful transformation. We read this and we go, wow, water into wine. Anybody ever seen that before? No, (laughs) right? And we go, that's amazing. And then we consider what this points towards, which we're going to continue unpacking over the next few minutes. And we go, well, but this is just a glimpse. Like, this is just a shadow. Like, as amazing as this is, God is doing something infinitely more amazing as he transforms the human heart. There's this recreation in the now, this transformation, as well as this understanding of recreation in the future. This is the common thread through the miracles of Jesus. What does a world separate from sin look like? Well, we get a glimpse through this story. Here's what it looks like. In a world that is separate from sin, there is no shortage. There is beautiful abundance. It calls us back to what we see in the garden, in the beginning. It reminds us, for those of us who were here last week, we get a glimpse into what uh, what Jacob is prophesying for the life of, of Judah and this king that is to come and create this world in which donkeys are no longer tied up to posts, but choice vines. Why? Well, because it's an abundant place. It's a recreated place. There is no shortage. Not only that, but there's no, there's no shame. There's no shame and there's, and there's no anxiousness. There's no anxiety. There's no, there's no depression. There's no concern. All of these would have been byproducts of this scene minus Christ's interaction, engagement, and recreation. To throw a party, a wedding party, And to run out of drink, how embarrassing for the family. (laughs) How shameful. Here through this act, we see Jesus 
stepping in and performing this miracle that points towards, again, this, this, this like robbery, this taking away of any potential shame, this taking away of any potential anxiety or anxiousness. Now there is only joy. There is only abundance. Man, this is the new world that Jesus will create. We get a glimpse here in John chapter 2 of, of, a, of a temporal, right, a recreation in the now as well as a recreation in the future. Recreation, transformation. Let's step back into part two of verse six through nine as we consider further God's work of purification and what we can say about that in light of what we see here in Genesis chapter, Genesis. John chapter two. You guys are gonna have to bear with me. We're probably gonna do that a couple of times. John chapter two, verse six. Go back with me there. We're talking of, of purification. We've seen transformation, we've seen recreation, and now we're talking about purification. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, here's what I want you guys to do. Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted, the water became wine. I came across a a commentator this past week that provided some really helpful and beneficial insight into what we see taking place here. He draws our focus in this really neat way towards the emphasis of what we see taking place. Listen to what he has to say. He says, before the water became wine, it was water contained in six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. The water has a a symbolic association with the Jewish rites of purification, which belong to the Old Testament. These rites have to do with symbolic purification, which is a type of the real purification that God will bring. And so do we understand what we're talking about here? We're talking about these these jars. There's this symbolism by way of their use that Jesus is speaking towards here in this work of bringing about something new and something better. He says this, the symbolism in the miracle at Cana includes a symbolic representation of the transition from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant level of types, shadows, to a New Testament, New Covenant level of fulfillment. We're going to explain this in just a few minutes, but hang with me. How is this fulfillment accomplished? This is what he says. Through Christ, right? Through the Messiah. Just as Christ changed water into wine, so he changed the entire course of history from one era to another. We are observing a a transition here. We are observing a transcendence here. We are observing a fulfillment here. The water of shadows in the Old Testament became the wine of fulfillment in the New Testament. It would have been customary, as perhaps you are aware, to go about this work of washing oneself, to purify oneself in obedience to the law, the instruction of the Lord. What we see by way of Jesus' action here saying, take these jars and fill them up, turning them into wine is this. Jesus is saying, you won't need these anymore. 
You're not going to need these anymore. There, there is no longer to be a need for this rite of purification. Why? Well, because I've come to bring about this greater work of purification. Actual purification. Real purification. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, which helps us immensely in understanding what we're talking about right here. He says this, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, that is our own natural moral potential, could not do. Man, God has done. God has succeeded. God has made a way. The old is being being fulfilled through Christ and in Christ and set aside that way might be made to this new covenant, through this new covenant, to enjoy true relationship with God. Frustration resulting from our inability, frustration resulting from our inconsistency, frustration resulting from our failure is cast off. Jesus says this, right? In in, in my life and in my death, through my resurrection, I am fulfilling and I am victorious. The old covenant fulfilled. Ushering in a new. The party gets a lot better. <laughs> the party gets a lot better when Jesus, when Jesus shows up, right? And he and he leans into this work of of transformation when he accomplishes this this work of purification. This is just a foreshadowing. We're in the second chapter of John at this point. This is the first miracle of Jesus. But even now, Jesus is pointing towards what he has come to do. Even now, he is pointing towards what he has come to accomplish. And when we, on this side of the cross, step back and we observe this, there is but one right response to what we see. As we realize the weight of this old covenant being shed. Run, John, run, the law demands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. When we realize this, what happens, man? There is this, there is this, there's this exhale. Right, that leads us to, to celebrate. That leads us to celebrate and we observe it in this passage. Look with me at the second half of verse 9. The master of the feast, having tasted this water that now has become wine, speaks towards its quality. We've, we are now understanding its abundance. There is an abundance of this new wine. All of these, these cisterns whose purpose is is understood and connected with with old covenant and law have been now filled with this new wine it's, it's we get this sense that it's overflowing as we come into verses 9 and 10 we see emphasis on the quality he says to him man everyone serves the good wine first and when people have drunk freely then they pour the poor wine Man, but you have kept the good wine until now. 
Right? There's this sense of, of leading up to, like anticipation would have been building had we known this was coming. And now it's, it's fulfilled. It's realized. Holy cow, the, the new wine, the better wine, it has arrived. It has been poured and it is being extended. Verse 11, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee. There is this emphasis on the quality The old covenant, a law, establishes a right understanding of our need. Paul speaks about this in his letter to the Galatians. He says that, that the law is, is sent and acts as a taskmaster for us, as a teacher, essentially, who, who takes us by the hand, having shown us our inability, and then brings us to our Savior, brings us to our Rescuer, brings us to our King. In light of this understanding, we observe the abundance of grace available through the new covenant, the better wine that is made available at the perfect time. We start asking questions like, how do you, how do you respond in light of the miracles of Jesus here? How do, you, how do you feel and how ought you act? I think one right response is to marvel at God's work to recreate at God's work to, as there is this foreshadowing through the purification that is to take place through the spilt blood of Jesus, the better wine, the best wine. We marvel and we celebrate. We step back and we stand in, in awe. We offer ourselves in a posture of adoration. Realizing Verse 11, that, that through this miracle, we observe a manifestation of his glory. Leaving his disciples, believing in him. As amazing as the, the work of, of elemental transformation is, which is what we see here, that which was once water now becoming wine. As amazing as that is, when we understand the blood of Jesus being the better sacrifice, as we understand Jesus's use of this particular element to speak towards his spilt blood for you and I, Jesus is foreshadowing in this moment within this passage to a future celebration, a future wedding between himself and his church. Man, we become a worship-filled people. It's no coincidence that this miracle that Jesus performs takes place at a wedding. It's no coincidence that this wedding is running out of wine and Jesus provides that which is better and more abundant and more pure, more sufficient. It's no coincidence. Jesus is speaking here towards this work that he is to accomplish on the cross for you and I. Jesus says in John chapter 2 that though his hour was not yet at hand during the wedding at Cana and Galilee, it would eventually be at hand. And when it is at hand, it will become appropriate to ask him to provide the wine for the feast. The feast of the kingdom of God. The wine being his blood that he has given to us to drink. 
Jesus affirms this point in John chapter 6, verses 53 through 56. Now, for the sake of context, I'm going to read verses 47 through 52. So I'll draw our attention towards like the here we go portion. Okay, so hang with me. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 47, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Believes in what? Believes in who? Believes in me. He says, verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? He's not waiting until John chapter six to begin speaking towards what he is to accomplish, it begins here in John chapter 2. Listen to here in verse 53. This is where the oomph comes. Okay, so everybody hang, hang with me right here. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is, tr- is true drink. Man, this drink that shows up at this wedding, man, it is incredible. People are taking note. They are speaking about it. It stands out. It is, it is distinct and different from what is ordinarily a part of cultural practice. Man, but when we come to John chapter 6, we see that there is something better. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. All of this, the provision of God observable through the work of Jesus at this wedding in Cana. Man, it's, it's just a, a foreshadowing. It provides for us anticipation of this greater festive provision that Jesus accomplishes through his crucifixion and resurrection. And so let's, let's narrow in on this. Let's close out with this. What do we do in light of what we see here in John chapter 2? Observing, right, this work of, of recreation, this work of transformation that God works in the hearts of men as he calls us unto himself. His provision that being his, his own body broken and his own blood spilt so that you and I might be made righteous, receiving invitations to the party and clothed to enter in. What do we need to know? I mean, we need to know this. We need to know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to renew creation. We need to know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient you may be here this morning, you may be struggling with that, right? This feeling of, of, of shame and this anxiety and anxiousness and confusion and, and wrestling with sin. What you need to know, what we need to know is that there is, there is an abundant provision available to sinners that actually, it actually, uh, it, it moves us into this new location, Right, from from the, this, this world existing under the rule and reign of the enemy to the kingdom, the kingdom of God here and, and now to be fulfilled anew and made new, recreated one day. 
I mean, we need to know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. Know this. Man, know this morning that you are loved by a king who sheds his blood for you so that you might be invited to the wedding party that dwarfs any other wedding party. (laughs) Okay? This eternal party between God and his people, the bride and their groom. Jesus turning water into wine is amazing. And through this act, Jesus points those present toward his power to transform both these elements as well as the world and the human heart. There's new wine. There's, there's better wine. We see so this substance that undergoes an act of recreation at the hands of the creator. And it st- instills within us this confidence and belief that we too can be transformed. Jesus calls us into this. And so the right response is to come. Jesus calls us into this. He calls us into this, this recreation. He calls us into the submission. He calls us into faith. And so the right response is to come. Not only that, but there's a call to, to rest in the new covenant of Jesus' blood and to celebrate. Let's close with this idea. I'm going to pray in just a moment and we're going to come to the tables. Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is making all things new. This includes you and I as rescued rebels who have been washed clean and made new. And so let's come to the table. Let's come to the table in in worshipful anticipation and gratitude for the abundant grace of Jesus who through his suffering erases our shame. What a good king, what an amazing party, and what a wonderful hope for you and I. Let's pray together. God, thank you for um, time in your word today. And um, we're grateful for the way that through John chapter 2, we see your power and, and willingness and, and, and um, involvement in the world that provides hope for broken hearts here this morning. Hope that recreation is something that is is uh, is is there. Uh, that you are uh, committed to the work of transformation and restoration, and that provides hope for weary, broken, and separated hearts. And so we pray um, that by the power of your Spirit, you would provide for us confidence and the sufficiency of the blood of our King to rescue us, to restore us, to give us new hearts, to give us new and right purpose. As we find provision and purification through the sacrifice of Jesus for us. May this create for all of us a posture of celebration, cause for celebration as we realize that, that it is finished, that you have done it, that the war is over and that there is hope for abundance for your people. We love you, Father, and we are grateful for the way that you love us.
for the way that you rescue us, for the way that you practice such patience with us, and the way that through your word you remind us of your work to bring about this ultimate renewal and transformation, not only in us, but in our world. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 